Grab your Bible once again, and you can turn to the final book in God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 11, is where we are this evening. Certainly, as the way we've been breaking up our texts in Revelation, it's a longer portion than we've had in recent weeks, and even we'll have in the next several weeks to come, as we look at the first 14 verses of Revelation chapter 11. And as I read it, and if you weren't with us during the announcement time, just here again, if as I read this it seems altogether confusing, recognize that you're on common ground with Christians throughout the ages that have been befuddled and frustrated even by this passage. But I trust that we're going to see its glorious truth together tonight. So let me read for us verses 1 through 14 of Revelation chapter 11. Listen now as Christ speaks once again to us through His Word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange parents' presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. A second woe has passed, behold... The third woe is soon to come. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together once again. Father, we ask your strength. We ask once again for a full measure of your spirit. That we might hear this truth. That we might keep this truth. And so find your divine blessing upon it. As you have promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure about some of you, but... As far as I can remember, there's only two times in my life where I have gone to a movie theater to watch a movie in 3D. And if you've ever been to such a show, you know uh, that you have to have those 3D 
glasses if you're going to enjoy the entire experience. If you've ever been to such a show before, you know that if you don't have those lenses, you can still see the movie, you can understand the story, you can get the essential truths, but without those lenses, the full detail, the full spectacle of that show isn't made manifest to your eyes. And what we're finding over and over and scene after scene in Revelation It's as though what the Spirit is doing through John's apocalypse is he's putting these scriptural spectacles on our eyes that we might see the world in the fullness of detail and the fullness of its reality and the fullness of heaven's perspective on what is happening here on earth. And we're going to see that again this evening Heaven's perspective on the church's life as the church is waiting for the return of her Savior. It is a most mysterious text, the 14 verses that are before us this evening. Uh, There are at least five ordinary schools of thought related to just about everything you see in this passage. You know as well as I do, we do not have enough time this evening for me to walk through five schools of thought about everything that's in this passage. The tack that we will take is not one that should be surprising to those of you that have walked through Revelation with us in recent months. But kids, what you always need to remember about Revelation, because it can be, as you grow up, it can be a book that's enticing, it can be a book that's interesting and fascinating, but it seems to be this book that hides its truths from the ordinary mind. But what you need to recognize is always through these bizarre images. Kids, these wild and crazy things written down on a page and presented before our mind's eye. God is always after, or should I should at least say almost always after, a simple yet significant spiritual truth for His people. And what I'm going to give you tonight in the course of our study are four such truths. Our theme is the life of the witnessing church. And we're going to see four simple truths contained in our 14 verses. The first of which is the church will be persecuted. Number two, the church will preach the gospel. Number three, the church will be apparently defeated. Or partially defeated is what I should say. And then fourthly, the church will be ultimately protected. So the text is talking about the church as we'll try to tease out in a few moments. It's persecution. It's ministry of preaching the gospel. It's apparent partial defeat and it's ultimate protection. Well, let's make sure we remember where we are. If you've been away with us in recent weeks from Revelation, uh, we find ourselves at a critical moment in the third series of sevens that we find in this book. Don't ever forget, there's these series of sevens that delineate the vast majority of Revelation, the first series of sevens related to the seven letters to the seven churches there in Asia Minor as Christ is pinning these words of warning or encouragement to his people in those early churches. Then we saw Jesus take the scroll that was in God's right hand, and he, and he began to open it, taking one by one the seven seals. And what we've said over the recent weeks is that that first journey of John, that first perspective that John received of human history between the comings of Jesus Christ came through the, the seven seals. And then when the seventh seal was opened, uh, you expected things to come to this climactic conclusion, but instead it just ushered in another series of sevens, which was the series of the seven trumpets. So it's this second pass-through, if you will, of human history between the two comings of Jesus Christ, looking at the same realities, just from a different vantage point. And so the sixth trumpet sounded forth at the end of chapter 9. The seventh trumpet, Lord willing, is what we get to at the end of chapter 11 next Lord's Day evening. So in between, 
where we've been for recent weeks, in between is something of an extended interlude between the second to last trumpet and the last trumpet. And if you watched last week's service or listened to last week's service, you heard Dr. Dunson talk about this scroll that Jesus gave to John. And kids, if you were paying attention, you remember that Jesus told John, eat that scroll. And what was it going to taste like? On his mouth, it was going to be sweet. In his stomach, it was going to be bitter. And that scroll was none other than the word of life, the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the ministry of the gospel is very much one to those who believe. It's one that is sweet, isn't it? But to those who don't believe, it's altogether bitter. It was this scene and portrayal of the glory and the agony that belongs to gospel preaching. Glory and agony that we're going to see in our text again tonight. But the first truth that we see in this passage about the life of God's witnessing church is, first of all, the church will be persecuted. Look at verse 1 once again. John says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. And you see in verse 2, but don't measure what is outside of the temple. If you were an early Jewish Christian at the time hearing this read in your hearing uh, for the first time, you would immediately think of this passage in Ezekiel chapter 40 where there Ezekiel was given this measuring line and said, go measure the temple. And here he is to measure this temple, which is none other than the people of God. We don't take this as a literal temple that belongs to some future age that's going to be built once again in Jerusalem. This is, as the New Testament is telling us over and over, is is the new covenant people of God. It's the church of God. It's the dwelling place of God, Ephesians 2 says, because we're all, the church is being built up into a dwelling place, a temple for God through His Son and by His Spirit. So it's meant to measure out the boundaries, if you will, pictorially, symbolically of the church, but not of those outside the church. You see verse 2 continues, because that is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And it's appropriate to think of that phrase of the holy city in Revelation as referring to Jerusalem. But it's not speaking of the Jerusalem that we know of today. It's speaking about this heavenly Jerusalem that is above, that's going to come down upon the earth. But importantly, what you want to recognize there is that he's not to measure what's outside of the temple. He's not to measure the world that's given over to unbelief. It's given over to the power of the devil. And significantly, what is that part of the world going to do but trample God's people for 42 months? Now you want to ask, well, what's 42 months all about? Well, that comes from this scene in Daniel chapter 9, which is perhaps the most mysterious and enigmatic prophecies in all the Old Testament about the 70th week in Daniel's prophecy. And surely it refers to to nothing other than that time period in which we find ourselves now, a time period between the two comings of Jesus Christ, that during the church's experience here on earth, waiting for the Lord's return, is it not one? Where the church ordinarily finds itself being trampled on by the world, persecuted by the world, afflicted in the world. That's the first truth you want to see from the vantage point of heaven as we put on those scriptural spectacles. Uh, What we see, of course, don't we, is that here on earth, the church that belongs to the city above is nevertheless trampled by the unbelievers below. Truth number two, the Church will preach the gospel. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses 
And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So kids and students, if you glance down again at verse 2 and 3, you see two different time periods. 42 months, 1,262 days. And you might know that 42 months is wink, wink, how many days? 1,260 days. So you ask the question, why say the same time period in two different descriptions or with two different definitions? When you have kids, young kids like we do at the house, that are always wanting to satiate their appetite. Rarely does an hour go by in our experience as parents where someone doesn't ask, how long until snack time? How long until lunch time? How long until dinner time? And sometimes the need is so urgent that they just forget the reality of what you've just told them. So a few weeks back, someone came up to me, one of the kids, and said, Daddy, how long till dinner? And I said, oh, I don't know, about 30 minutes. And, you know, within a few seconds, the next one comes up. He didn't hear this conversation. Daddy, how long until dinner? I said, oh, I don't know, about, about 30 minutes. And then the first one that asked the question came up just a minute later and said, Daddy, now how long is it until dinner? I said, oh, I don't know, 1,860 seconds was the response. And of course, students, if you know math well, 30 minutes is what? 1,800 seconds. But sometimes if you just say it in a different way, it jars you into the reality of the time period. Maybe it's a time period that seems not so short as it would have otherwise. Or a time period that seems not so long as it would have otherwise. Certainly, I think the time period is clear enough that it's referring to the church's life between the two comings of Jesus Christ. But what about the identity of these two witnesses? Well, we don't have to guess. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is why Revelation confuses people. You say, I want to know the identity of the two witnesses. And John says, well, I'll help you out. Two olive trees and two lampstands, that's who they are. But that actually is a significant help. Because what you're going to recognize once again in Revelation is that you cannot understand John's description of the imagery apart from his Old Testament vocabulary. Because even in this short text before us tonight, he is clearly alluding to numerous Old Testament books. Exodus, 1 Kings, Psalms, Ezekiel, Daniel. And he's got a sixth one in mind here in verse 4. Can any of you recall a time that was relatively important and significant in Israel's history that speaks of olive trees and lampstands? from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, where the lampstands there depict God's people, the leaders at the time. And have we not already seen in Revelation to this point that the lampstands, early on in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what do they depict? But the church, God's people. And in Zechariah, chapter 4, the, the olive trees, it's the energy, it's the fuel for God's people, which is depicted as none other in Zechariah 4 as the Holy Spirit. So who then are the two witnesses? This is the simple truth, even though it's shrouded in this bizarre imagery. The two witnesses, it's none other than God's people, empowered by God's Spirit, who is what? The church of Jesus Christ. This is the people of God prophesying, preaching the truth, declaring God's word. And notice what happens in verse 5 and 6 to those who attempt and long try to harm God's people. Verse 5 and 6 says, If anyone would harm them, Fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and that they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. The two characters from the Old Testament you want to think of right there are none other than Moses and Elijah who brought these plagues and punishments upon the land. That the church in its praying ministry, that the church in its preaching ministry has that kind of power towards those who would want to do her harm. So recognize, if you're in here this evening, and you perhaps intentionally or unintentionally are trying to do God's church harm, the judgment and punishment that awaits is pictured here as fire pouring forth from their mouth and consuming their foes. It's even a picture of Revelations reminding us of the priority and primacy of preaching in the life of God's people. Uh, this is the sum and substance of our mission and ministry. It's, it's preaching Jesus Christ. Our days as we're waiting for the Son to return are given over to the truth of Jesus Christ. So I wonder then how you are participating in and with the church's preaching ministry. How are you praying for it? How are you growing through it? How are you joining with it? The church will be persecuted, number one. Number two, the church will preach the gospel. Number three, the church will appear Partially defeated. You see verse 7. At the end, through verse 8, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Surely, again, it helps us recognize the symbols that are meant in these pictures. There's no place to which you could turn to in the Bible where Jesus was crucified that was called Sodom in Egypt. A place of slavery to sin, unless you understand appropriately, correctly, that Sodom in Egypt is none other than the city of man. It is the unbelieving world. This beast that we're going to soon meet in chapter 13 and subsequently later on in Revelation is none other than this demon from the abyss warring against God's people, actually triumphing, did you see that? Over God's people. It's, it's language of success. Conquer and kill. Leaving the bodies in the street. Now kids, if you lived in the ancient world and you wanted, after someone died, to show them the most scorn and shame possible, what you'd do is you wouldn't bury them. You just leave them in the street. It was this way of showing ridicule, of mocking and reviling that person. And here portrayed an image is saying that the world, of course, as it tries to conquer through devilish means, the church is given over to reviling, ridiculing, shaming, and scorning, scorning God's people. And oftentimes it appears to work, doesn't it? If you know your history well, if you know your church history geography well, we could pull up a globe tonight, couldn't we? And point to a number of places in the world where the church used to burn brightly for Jesus Christ. And now it's midnight black in its ministry. The devil appears to be winning in many places. But you underscore that truth of appears to be winning. Because it gets us to the fourth truth. The church will be ultimately protected. Because after they rejoice over the apparent death of the church, verse 10, look at verse 11 and 12. But after three and a half days, at the end of all things, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on all those who saw them. 
And then they heard with a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. It is just a picture of the end of all things when Jesus is going to return, when he's going to summon his church in that general resurrection from the dead. He's going to bring them once again to life, just as Ezekiel, you might remember in the valley of dry bones, he sees this great scene of resurrection. That there is at the end of all things when Jesus returns going to be another, even greater scene of resurrection. And the world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord that they have scorned the Savior himself, which is proved, as verse 13 tells us, notice at that hour there was a great earthquake. In apocalyptic language, great earthquake is almost always a judgment reality. Immediately is Christ's judgment. He returns a tenth of the city will fall. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. So not all the people will die when he returns, but certainly some of them will. And notice the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is not glory that's given to the God of heaven because they're receiving and resting on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This is what the New Testament often speaks about. When Jesus returns, all are going to see him. Every eye will see him revealed and they will realize that he is in fact the King of kings and Lord of lords. But they're going to realize it too late at that point. And I hope none of you are going to realize too late That his word is indeed true. The church will, at the end of all things, show herself. Because of God's kindness, grace, and power. Ultimately protected. So these are four truths about God's witnessing people. Their life here on the earth. They will be persecuted. They will preach the gospel. At times appear partially defeated. Ultimately they will be protected. You see how the scene ends. Verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That's just Revelation's way of telling us the sixth trumpet has come to its end. Get ready for the sounding forth of the seventh trumpet at the end of this passage. In the fourth century, some of the greatest debates over Christian doctrine and theology took place in one of the most legendary defenders of Christian truth was the bishop of Alexandria named Athanasius. In the 4th century, these debates and these councils and these disputes over deep theological matters uh, occupied political powers, it occupied social powers, cultural powers. So, for example, in the time of Athanasius, what you had was Valens in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. He was in charge of all of that. He went to another bishop named Eusebius, who was in charge of the church at Vercelli in Italy. And, And Eusebius was a supporter of Athanasius. And he said, Eusebius... You have to stop supporting what Athanasius says, which we understand now today is to be none other than gospel truth. Stop supporting that or I'm going to take everything away from you. Language from our text, I'm going to trample you. I'm going to conquer you. I'm going to kill you. And here's what Eusebius said. He need not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose, nor banishment, to whom heaven is his country, nor torments, when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. That's the mind who's taken the spectacles of revelation and knows the reality of life as God's witnessing people. So let me help you see two final things as we close from this text. The first of which is, 
the church lives in present adversity. You will never escape that truth in Revelation. The church lives in present adversity. God is establishing his kingdom gloriously in enemy-occupied territory, daring Satan to come and conquer his kingdom. And yet oftentimes, life in Jesus Christ not only brings affliction and adversity, it does bring martyrdom, it does bring death, no doubt it brings difficulty. And for those of us in the West, in our context today, we may not get physical scars from this kind of battle, but surely many of us, should the Lord continue to tarry and keep us around, you will experience emotional scars from this battle, perhaps even spiritual scars from this battle. Don't forget, you live in present adversity. And then secondly, the church looks to future victory, lives in present adversity, and looks to future victory. For what is going to keep God's people afloat when adversity and affliction seems to swallow up all hope is that you may appear defeated right now, but you will ultimately be protected because Jesus Christ swallowed all of the adversity and affliction when he hung on the cross in your place so that the shame that the world means to heap upon the church actually gets thrown around on them. Which is why Colossians 2.15 says that it was in the cross of Jesus Christ that God the Father put the rulers and authorities to open shame as he triumphed over them in his son, Jesus Christ. A church lives in adversity. A church looks to future victory. Why? Because we're a persecuted people. We're a preaching people. We're a sometimes partially defeated people. But we're always a protected people. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to find new strength in Jesus Christ in the midst of our present adversity. Lord, we do know that many in this room are enduring hardship, in loneliness, in isolation, that many are suffering. But Lord, help us by your Spirit to lift our gaze to Jesus Christ, longing for his return, that we might find new strength, that we might find a new power in his coming victory, recognizing that he has already fought the war. He has won the victory for us and we merely need to rest and enjoy even in the midst of great diligence and vigilance what he has brought to us and we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we want to respond to God's word as we sing uh, printed there in your bulletins our hymn of response, He Will Hold Me Fast. I fear my faith, fail. 